Hello and welcome to a special Wildfire Smoked edition of Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today, you'll be gobsmacked to learn. We'll hear from the international relations scholar Christopher Lane on the long history behind the war in Ukraine. And the artist Marcus Brown will talk about an augmented reality exhibit on slavery he put together in lower Manhattan. It's become nearly impossible to talk about what led up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. The only acceptable explanation seems to be the primal evil of Vladimir Putin, which must be extinguished. I'm not here to defend him as a figure or as invasion. He's a reactionary authoritarian, and the war he launched is monstrous. But resorting to primal evil doesn't really qualify as an explanation, nor does it point to a way out of the current horror. A good backgrounder, as we say in the journalism trade, for the war is a cover story in the June issue of Harper's Magazine, Why Are We in Ukraine on the Dangers of American Hubris, by Benjamin Schwartz and Christopher Lane. No doubt the presence of the phrase American Hubris will set lots of people off, but they need to calm down and think a bit. Here's Christopher Lane to talk about the history and politics around Ukraine. He's the Robert M. Gage Chair in National Security at Texas A&M University, not a title you'd associate with either a Putin fanboy or an airheaded hippie peacenik. Lane is also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, an affiliation you wouldn't associate with a Putinite or hippie either. In his long career, his major focus has been international relations theory, and particularly American grand strategy. His co-author, Benjamin Schwartz, was supposed to join us, but he had to cancel because his dog required emergency surgery. Here's Christopher Lane. It looks like uh, in Ukraine we're seeing more of a direct conflict between the U.S. and Russia than anything we saw in the first Cold War. What do you think of that? I mean, it seems really, really dangerous, and people are being very complacent about the dangers that uh, we're um, facing. Doug, I couldn't agree more. Uh, One of the things that uh, my co-author, Ben Schwartz, and I were and are very worried about is our concern about the dangers of escalation. And actually, the New York Times today has a front-page story all of us who have been following this conflict remember it wasn't just too long ago that the Biden administration was unwilling to have Ukraine given certain kinds of weapon systems out of fear that they might use those weapon systems to target Russian territory and that that would carry with it a risk of escalation. Uh, The story of the New York Times today sort of suggests pretty strongly that they're not worried about the fact that there is now fighting on Russian territory. And it seems that the people in Washington, I think, have come to a conclusion that Vladimir Putin has bluffed so many times, made so many threats to escalate. And every time that the U.S. and NATO and Ukraine have escalated, Russia seems to have just sat there with folded arms and done nothing. So I think there is a complacency. I think there's a sense that that all of Putin's threats to escalate are nothing more than a bluff. My own feeling is that the situation is probably a lot more dangerous than the administration is letting on publicly. Yeah, we don't know now what Putin's red lines are, but we know he has them. And I guess I would analogize this to walking across a minefield with a blindfold on. There's stuff out there. You're going to step on it, possibly, or you might get lucky and you might not. But one thing is clear, if you're walking through a minefield blindfolded, you're taking a pretty big risk. And I just really wonder how long the Russians are going to be content to see the U.S. and NATO continue to give more and more advanced weapon systems and intelligence support and training to the Ukrainian forces before there really is a red line that gets crossed. Before proceeding, we should make it clear that we're not defending Putin's war, which is brutal and horrifying. But it seems like in the current climate, to ask what brought us to this miserable pass is equated with apologetics for slaughter. This is disturbing because there is no debate, really, in the foreign policy establishment. At the beginning, it was clear that there were a couple of NATO states, particularly France and Germany, that really were not on board with fighting a war with Russia. Even in the last week, President Macron of France has really pulled back from his more cautious stance he was advocating at the beginning. 
Ben and I have already done a number of interviews. We did one uh, the other day, and our interviewer was suggesting that Putin was like Hitler, and this was a replay of Nazi Germany. It's not. The lack of sophistication in this debate has sort of helped to blind not just people in the foreign policy establishment, but Americans who care about their country's foreign policy. To be analytical is not to be an apologist. We've gotten to the point now where if you want to be analytical, if you want to go into the history and the background, the context, you then become an apologist, which most certainly Ben and I are not. All right, let's do some of that history. If we go back to the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, all those security arrangements that had become the received structures of the post-war decades falling apart, it immediately became an issue of what was going to happen with NATO. And going back as far as Gorbachev, we said we had never agreed to assign NATO a leading role in building a new Europe. The European leaders at the time, Mitterrand and Genscher, the German foreign minister, said that uh, they're going to wanted to build uh, Gorbachev's phrase a new European home, one that would transcend the U.S. and Soviet-led alliances that had defined a divided continent, as you say in the article. That caution was quickly thrown to the winds. You've raised a number of points in a very short period of time there with that statement, and, and I want to go back to one thing you said because it triggers the title of the book, which I think will help shed some light on this for people who want to read it. It's by uh, Vyacheslav Zubak, who was professor at the London School of Economics, and he took the words right out of your mouth. The title is Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union. And one thing that emerges from this very well-researched book is, as the Soviet Union was in sort of the slow-motion process of disintegrating in 1990-91, people in Moscow, people in Kiev, people in Washington all recognized that if, in fact, the Soviet Union disintegrated and you had an independent Russia and an independent Ukraine, that there would be trouble. And by trouble, I mean people understood that there was a serious risk that somewhere down the line, once the Soviet Union ceased to exist, Russia and Ukraine would be at the risk of going to war. This is not something that should have come as a surprise. I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise to people in Kiev and Moscow who've been active in uh, making foreign and security policy for their respective countries. Um, this was pretty apparent as the Soviet Union was disintegrating. And you may recall that in 1991, President Bush, President George H.W. Bush, went to Kiev and gave a speech which the uh, great New York Times columnist, William Sapphire, immediately labeled the Chicken Kiev speech <laughs> because President Bush very sensibly told the Ukrainians that if they succumbed to the siren song of nationalism, that they were asking for trouble. Hardliners in the United States were reveling in the disintegration of the Soviet Union and actually wanted to promote it. And as many people on the far right today, or the right, not just the far right, want to see this war culminate in the breakup of the Russian Federation and the ultimate smashing of its power. And then there's the whole question of NATO expansion. For people who are interested in this, the, the best source is Mary Surratt's book, Not One Inch. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled and undoubtedly will be spilled again in the future about what exactly the Russians and Soviets understood during the German reunification negotiations in 1990. But one thing is clear, they certainly could have walked away with the idea that, no, the Cold War is over, when Germany becomes reunified, NATO is not going to expand eastward once Germany was reunified. And then the Clinton administration came to office in uh, January of 93 and had a much different idea. And they saw German reunification as not heralding the, the end point of NATO expansion, but the idea of NATO expanding into the former Soviet satellites. As you correctly note, every Soviet slash Russian leader, starting with Mikhail Gorbachev, since the end of the Cold War, and there have only been three of them, right? Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and uh, now Putin, have all been vociferously opposed to NATO expansion. Probably the greatest American-Russian expert of the post-World War II era, George F. Kennan, 
wrote an op-ed article that was published in the New York Times in February of 1987, pardon me, 1997, where he pointed out this NATO expansion was provocative, it was dangerous, and it was going to create great problems in U.S.-Russian relations going forward. Kennan was not listened to by most of our foreign policy establishment. There's a theory called offensive realism. It's primarily associated with John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago. But it's very simple and it's very intuitive. It's that when a state gains relative power versus its rival arrivals, its ambitions and interests are going to expand. Who would have thought in 1990, as the Soviet Union was going through this crisis, that by the early 2000s, NATO would not only have taken in states like Poland and the Czech Republic and Hungary, but actually expanding by taking in territory that historically had been part of both the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Empire, and then the Soviet Union, and namely the Baltic states. You know, the U.S. emerged from the end of the Cold War with this great feeling of triumphalism. And you, you know all the, the catchwords, the unipolarity, the unipolar moment, the end of history. There was a lot of hubris in Washington. And indeed, America had enormous power when the Cold War ended. What was to stop us from expanding NATO to the east? NATO expansion seems of a piece with the Clinton administration's policy of grinding Russia into the dirt by encouraging Yeltsin in a disastrous privatization that sent post-Soviet society into a decade-long tailspin. It all seems to go together. They really wanted to show who won, who's boss, and never rise again. Absolutely true, Doug. And that shows, again, the hubris that uh, descended upon the American foreign policy establishment after the Cold War. When I read, as I probably already have today, um, in the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Financial Times, that the war that we now want to say was, quote, unprovoked, unquote. Well, that depends on how far you back you want to go in the chain of causation. I think it's very clear from the Russian point of view, and I want to be very clear, I'm not just talking about Vladimir Putin. Russia seems to have disappeared from this debate now. Everything is Putin. That sort of causes us to overlook the fact that Russia's a state with a long history, is a history that has shaped the perception of its own foreign policy elites, and it has a foreign policy elite, just as the United States does, about what their security requirements are. For example, if you go back and read one of the most famous early Cold War documents, with George Kennan's famous long telegram, that he sent to the State Department in February of 1946, when the State Department and the Truman administration were sort of trying to get a handle on what kind of actor was the Soviet Union going to be in the post-World War II era. Kennan did not start by talking about communist ideology. He talked about what he called, quote, the historic sense of insecurity felt by Russia, partly due to its geography, partly due to the fact that there were unfriendly forces to the West and the East and the South. Um, so there's this pervasive sense in Russian political culture of being vulnerable. When you move American power through NATO to not only the, the very borders of what was the Soviet Union, but actually onto what was Soviet territory, how would we expect the Soviets or their successors, the Russian Federation, to react? A good way, if you can get Americans to start thinking about this, is to ask the question, well, if the People's Republic of China and Mexico tomorrow formed an alliance, and as part of that alliance, China moved troops from the People's Liberation Army to the Mexican side of the Rio Grande, how would America feel? And that's not really a hypothetical. We already know. We have the Monroe Doctrine, which said no European great powers can have interest in the Western Hemisphere because it belongs to the United States. We know during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the Soviet Union tried to uh, stake out uh, an outpost on Cuban soil, we know how strongly the United States reacted. Why is it we can't understand that Russians would react similarly to the expansion of NATO? I'm speaking with the international relations scholar Christopher Lane. In a moment, I will say Atlantic Institute. I should have said Atlantic Council. 
Not just this morning, I was arguing on Twitter with a fellow for the Atlantic Institute who couldn't understand how I would see NATO as anything but a defensive alliance. But in, in the article, you say that after the wars in Yugoslavia and Libya, the alliance NATO had been transformed from a supposedly mutual defense pact designed to repel an attack on its members into the preeminent military instrument of American power in the post-Cold War world. What about that transformation? Uh, and how did the, the wars in Yugoslavia and Libya figure into that? We should ask... Why is NATO still in existence? If it was a Cold War alliance designed for the specific purpose of containing the Soviet Union, why, when the Soviet Union collapsed and its successor state, Russia, was not, after the Cold War, a great power, what was the rationale for NATO? Once the Soviet Union was gone, why NATO? And I think that reveals some deeper rationales for why NATO was created. I wrote a book in 2006 uh, called The Peace of Illusions, and I did a lot of archival research. And it's very clear that policymakers in the Truman administration and even in the Franklin Roosevelt administration during the war envisioned the United States as a unipolar power even back then. And for them, the U.S. ended World War II in its position of enormous power. Somehow, unipolarity wasn't achieved because... The Soviet Union was was there, and American policymakers never gave up the hope of getting rid of the Soviet Union, and NATO for them was supposed to be an instrument, not just of containing the Soviet Union, but of establishing American dominance, or if I use the political science word, hegemony, over Western Europe. And now, with the Soviet Union gone, the United States has used NATO to establish American hegemony, not just in all of Europe, but also, as you say, in North Africa and Libya. There's been a lot of talk in the last week or so about creating a uh, East Asian NATO to contain China. There was a famous article written in the 1990s. It was called NATO, Out of Area or Out of Business. And yes, the argument was there that it had served its purpose during the Cold War. And once the Cold War was over, there was no need for NATO. But American policymakers didn't see that that way. They saw NATO as an indispensable instrument for establishing, solidifying American dominance in the three areas of the world that it has cared the most about since World War II ended, namely Europe, the Middle East, and East Asia. So, you know, we shouldn't buy into this idea that NATO was just about containing the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Its ambitions were always much greater. Another book, I don't agree with at all, but I think it's very telling, was the beginning of Brzezinski's book, The Grand Chessboard. In that book, he basically described in the post-Cold War world the emergence of an American-led NATO alliance that spanned from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. So think about that. When I read that book the first time, I said, this is crazy. This is nuts. This is never going to happen. But you see that NATO, in fact, has become an instrument for expanding American power in Europe and in other places. This is an instrument of American power, and it always has been. In the article, you point to a change in U.S. nuclear strategy. The old balance of terror that uh, kept the peace during the Cold War has been uh, transformed. Could you describe what that change is, and then how did the Russians perceive this? And do we no longer have mutually assured destruction to protect us? Well, this is a very complex issue, and I want to give credit to um, two of our colleagues, Kier Lieber, Georgetown University, and his co-author, Daryl Press, who's at Dartmouth. Now, they've written a book about this, and they've made the argument that because of technological advances on the American side and the limitations on the Russian side caused by the economic collapse after the Soviet Union broke up, that the United States has been able to achieve nuclear superiority. What does that mean? The ability to launch a first strike against Russia that would essentially disarm Russia uh, and leave the United States invulnerable to any kind of retaliation. Now, whether the United States actually really has that capability or not, I am not in a position to say. But I can say is that even going back to the Cold War, American strategists always aimed at achieving a first strike capability because understand what American policy was. American policy 
was not that we would use nuclear weapons only if the United States homeland was attacked. The American policy was that we would use nuclear weapons in response to a Soviet conventional attack against NATO during the Cold War. Now, think about the escalation risks on that and think about whether that's a credible threat. First, you have to reassure your allies that you'll really do what you say. And um, there's a very famous incident. President John F. Kennedy's first trip as president abroad was to Paris to meet with the great French leader, Charles de Gaulle. And at that time, the French were building, trying to build out their own independent of the U.S. and NATO nuclear deterrent, which the United States opposed. President Kennedy said, why do you need nuclear weapons? You don't need your own nuclear weapons. We have nuclear weapons. We're in NATO. We're going to defend you. And the call just looked at him and said, well, we need nuclear weapons because if push comes to shove, you Americans won't risk New York and Chicago to defend Paris and Hamburg. So it's very hard to make these threats credible. And the only two ways you can make them credible are having a first-rate capability that can actually completely disarm the other side or disarm it enough so that if you have ballistic missile defenses, what the other side has left after suffering the American first strike will not be so enormous that they can't be taken out by a ballistic missile defense system. So, you know, an American nuclear strategy, ballistic missile defense, actually is ballistic missile offense because you have to have a first strike capability to whittle down the opponent's forces to a manageable size for your ballistic missile defenses to take out. The question that never seems to get asked, and um, I think it's one that desperately needs to be asked, what is the nature of these commitments we're giving to our, quote, allies? You know, we talk in these very antiseptic terms, extended deterrence or the nuclear umbrella. Nobody ever wants to go behind that rhetorical shield and actually, what does that really mean? To me, an umbrella is something you take out in bad weather and you put over your head to protect you. But the so-called American nuclear umbrella means that America is risking becoming involved in a nuclear war to protect other states, not itself. During the intermediate-range nuclear force crisis in the early 1980s, the Washington Post took a poll and it asked Americans, under what circumstances the U.S. would use nuclear weapons first. And some 80% of the respondents said the U.S. would only use nuclear weapons if the American homeland itself was attacked. That's not the right answer. Whatever happens in the current Ukraine war, if Russia ever recoups some of its strength and decides to menace the Baltic states, which are NATO members, and invade them with conventional forces, the NATO conventional troops that are now deployed in those states are there as tripwires. There's no way they could prevent those countries from being overrun by a Russian conventional attack. So the idea is the tripwire brings into play the risk that the U.S. will use nuclear weapons. So where does that leave us if we use nuclear weapons to attack Russia in response to their hypothetical conventional assault on the Baltic states. No, but nobody in the American foreign policy establishment likes to see this issue discussed. But every now and then, something sort of seeps out into the public discourse. And Henry Kissinger, in, I believe, 1987, attended a International Institute of Strategic Studies conference. That's a very prominent, highly regarded think tank. The conference is in Brussels. And the rules of that are what they call Chatham House rules. You can't quote anybody. Kissinger made a statement, and the next morning it was in the New York Times. And what he said is, don't you Europeans, remember the Cold War was still going on in 1987, don't you Europeans keep asking us to make assurances that we cannot possibly mean, and that if we did mean, we should never want to execute. Because the moment you really take the idea of a nuclear umbrella seriously, of extended deterrence. And let's get this term extended deterrence exposed for what it means. It means that the U.S. will use nuclear weapons to target an adversary's homeland in response to that adversary's conventional assault on U.S. allies. 
not its assault on the U.S. homeland. Think about the escalation cycle that that would spark. In other words, if it ever was tested, the U.S. guarantees to NATO basically a suicide pact. And a lot, some people recognize that during the Cold War. But the foreign policy establishment always sort of wanted to keep the lid on that debate. And now that debate sort of has a lid on it when it comes to what will we do to defend Taiwan? When everyone starts talking about the need to push for peace rather than keep continually amping up the war, people will say, you know, it's all up to Putin. What should Ukraine give up? They're just defending themselves against uh, uh, an evil invader. Is there a way out? Or is the U.S. really looking for unconditional surrender? Is there a way out? What would a plausible uh, peace deal look like? Is Washington likely to let that happen? We had an idea back in March last year of what a peace deal might look like because there were negotiations apparently with with Turkey as sort of an intermediary. Even President Zelensky said at that point in time that it was not inconceivable that there could be a peace deal that assured Russia that Ukraine would not become a member of NATO and that Ukraine would remain neutral. That's off the board for now. I think as you said a little while ago, you know, we should be asking ourselves what what the real ambitions of the United States are in this war. What do we want to see as peace terms? If I can, Doug, I'd just like to back up a little bit. The whole discourse here is, A, it's all Putin, and B, this war was unprovoked. Well, if you say it's unprovoked, you're looking at this whole Russian reaction to NATO expansion and saying it didn't matter. And even more, not only were the Russians opposed to NATO expansion in a general sense, from the get-go, when the Soviet Union broke up, they were vehemently opposed to NATO taking in Ukraine. And William Burns, who's now the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, was at one point under Secretary of State, and before, and before that was U.S. ambassador to Russia. Before the 2008 NATO Bucharest summit, where the George W. Bush administration came up with the really dangerous idea of proposing NATO membership for Ukraine, and the internal State Department discussions about this before the 2008 Bucharest summit, Burns said in a memo he wrote to Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice that the United States and NATO absolutely should not extend an offer of NATO membership to Ukraine, because I believe it's a direct quote, doing so would cross Russia's reddest of red lines. So, you know, there were people in Washington in positions of significant power and responsibility who did understand that whatever happened with the Baltic states and Poland and Hungary and Romania and the Czech Republic, that Ukraine was in a different category that the Russians might acquiesce to those other states becoming NATO members, but NATO was uh, taking in Ukraine was in a separate category to which Russia was unalterably opposed. Despite Burns' warning, uh, in fact, NATO sort of offered membership at the 2008 Bucharest summit. It didn't offer Ukraine what they call a NATO membership plan, but the communique that ended that NATO summit said that sooner or later, Ukraine will be will become a member of NATO. The Russians have been operating under the basis of that since 2008, that the real U.S. slash NATO goal is indeed to take Ukraine into NATO. Again, it's not just Putin. There's a foreign policy establishment in Russia. It includes people who are, quote, liberals and people who are Slavophiles on the far just about everybody in the broad spectrum of the Russian foreign policy establishment regards this is unacceptable, this meeting uh, Ukraine is a NATO member. We all know now that um, in the months leading up to the Russian invasion, that the U.S. had extremely good intelligence. We knew what the Russians were planning. We basically knew what they were going to do. The Russians sent the United States, I believe in December of 2021, a very long diplomatic note setting out what their concerns were and what they wanted. And at the head of the list was agreement that Ukraine would not become a member of NATO. So 
A, we know what the Russians want, and B, we know that if they don't get it, they're going to start a war. And pretty much we knew the date on which they were going to start the war. Instead of sitting down and saying, you know, you guys, we understand your concerns. Why don't we sit down and talk about it? All we heard from the Biden administration, from people like NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg is, no, 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 no. We are not going to rule out Ukrainian membership for NATO. NATO has an open door policy, meaning any state that qualifies can become a member, and we're not going to close the door on that. So you knew what the consequences would be if we didn't close the door on NATO, taking in Ukraine as a member. We knew the consequences. We knew that if we continued to hold open the path of of NATO membership for Ukraine, that the Russians were going to start a war. So I don't think the U.S. is entirely blameless in this. That was Christopher Lane, co-author along with Benjamin Schwartz of the cover story in the June issue of Harper's Why Are We in Ukraine? An allusion, no doubt, to Norman Mailer's 1967 novel, Why Are We in Vietnam? You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the fifth movement of Shostakovich's String Quartet No. 9, performed by the Sorrel Quartet. Next, art trying to draw attention to the history of slavery. Marcus Brown is a New Orleans-based artist who's doing a national augmented reality sculpture series called Slavery Trails, about an awful part of American history that a lot of people would rather forget. I learned of his work from Marcus Redeker. It's a duo of Marcuses, a historian of slavery and resistance who asked me to look into Brown's Wall Street project. The history of slavery in New York is deep, ugly, and largely forgotten, at least in the public culture. Some attention was drawn to it back in 2005 when the New York Historical Society mounted an exhibit on the topic and the New Press published a book to coincide with that exhibit. But, as with many things, the attention didn't linger, and you have to wonder how many New Yorkers know that, as the intro to the New Press book puts it, for much of the 18th century, New York City was second only to Charleston, South Carolina, in its proportion of slaves in an urban population. The wall that gave Wall Street its name, which was once the northern border of the early white settlement in Manhattan Island, was built by slave labor. It's estimated that as many as 40% of households in New York City owned slaves in the 18th century. Most were put to domestic labor, though as Marcus Brown will tell us, there was also some agricultural work and some surprising crops. But the city's relationship with slavery wasn't merely so direct and personal. New York's bankers and merchants earned a lot of money financing and exporting slave-picked cotton from the South to England, where it was made into fabrics and clothing, from which those same merchants and bankers profited by financing and importing and selling the finished material. And they also financed the slave trade. And as J.P. Morgan Chase discovered 20 years ago, a predecessor bank made a loan to cover a customer's gambling debts that was collateralized by some of his slaves. Of course, Chase was not alone among banks in financing the slave trade. And the city's insurance companies sold policies that would compensate slave owners if their human possessions were injured or killed. Marcus Brown's installation is at the eastern end of Wall Street, blocks away from the New York Stock Exchange. Like the Stock Exchange, founded in 1792 under a buttonwood tree at 68 Wall Street, the New York Slave Market, founded in 1711, was designed to create a centralized market for trading of commodities that had previously been traded in a disorganized fashion. 
Though unlike stocks, which are claims on profits derived from human labor, the slave market traded in humans themselves. The site of the installation is a small park near 100 Wall Street. You download an app, Adobe Arrow, and hold your phone up to the site, and then you see ghostly figures of people up for sale or rent. The effect is quite haunting. Marcus Brown mentions his Solomon Northrop exhibit. Northrop was the primary author of Twelve Years a Slave. Born in New York as a free man, he was kidnapped into slavery and freed a dozen years later. And now here's Marcus Brown with more. This uh, Wall Street project is part of a series called Slavery Trails. Could you tell us about that? What's uh, what's it about? Slavery Trails is a project I've put together and I've been producing for the last couple of years. It's a, a interactive site-specific augmented reality sculpture series based on slave ships and enslaved people placed on historical sites throughout the United States. And the goal with it is to create a decentralized memorial to slavery in the United States by using technology and art. I bet there are a lot of people in the audience who might not know what augmented reality is. The easiest way I can explain it is uh, some people have heard of the app called Pokemon Go. Not to compare my project to that, but some people have heard of it. And uh, people are kind of familiar with the low end of augmented reality where you use a filter on social media to change what your face looks like. And augmented reality needs to have a go-between, like an actual device. It's related to uh, virtual reality, but the difference here is is that you can see the real physical space and objects and structures that aren't really there in real life, and you have to look at it through your phone. It's something that we've kind of grown used to now with the use of smartphones. Now we're being introduced to more augment reality glasses and things like that. So it's an interactive experience that enhances the world with computer-generated information. So in the case of your Wall Street site, I just held up my uh, my phone, uh, th- looking through an Adobe app. Suddenly, the ghostly uh, presence of uh, human beings um, at auction appeared, right? Yeah. The Wall Street exhibit is an attempt to basically just... And all of, all of these exhibits are attempt to just basically give representation, a very basic form of representation to the enslaved people that did so much of the work to build the United States. The figures on Wall Street are the general representation of those figures. The people are not really clothed in the representation that I have. And most of my exhibits have people mostly nude. And a lot of that deals with some of the, I chose to do that because of the details behind when people were treated as chattel property, they did strip them in a lot of cases to inspect them for diseases. It also has the effect of dehumanizing people, turning them to objects, commodities. Exactly. And also, uh, I don't want to downplay this. One of the reasons why in that particular Wall Street exhibit, Black women are represented predominantly And that has to do with the fact that over 40% of the 18th century households in Manhattan had a enslaved person who was essentially a domestic person. And in a lot of cases, the people who were going to purchase these women were white males. And they obviously, our DNA and our history has shown us that the domestic working side of things wasn't the only thing that these people were interested in. A lot of people in New York don't realize that the city had a deep history of slavery. A lot of Yankees think it was just a Southern problem, but in fact, it wasn't. So this site is really right on Wall Street, what used to be the heart of the financial district, not so much anymore, but still symbolically so. So yeah, what was the slave market like? It was uh, nicknamed the meal market because they sold produce and grains at this particular market as well. A lot of the commerce that happened at this place, it was developed primarily because they were concerned about enslaved people all over Manhattan without some kind of an official system. So they created an official system to deal with purchasing people. This particular market also had indigenous people who were treated also as chattel, as property. And then also we know that the enslaved people involved at the particular markets were also hired, but under the context of you were hired 
on your owner's behalf. There were people who were getting rented out to other people who had labor or work to be done on their property, uh, work to be done on, on the land. Manhattan had a large town aspect, but also there was farming that was also being taken place. Some of the same crops we associate with the southern aspects of slavery were also present in New York, like tobacco, sugar, cotton, indigo, chocolate, and coffee. Uh, so I hold my phone up to uh, this site. What do I see? First, the app asks you to you know, tell it where the ground is. I encourage people to set it up to where the market is away from the street, obviously, because it's a lot easier to walk around and kind of see the people. Uh, Manhattan Park has a small area, but it's still a big enough area where you can place the actual building of the market. And what you see is like ghostly figures, almost a monochromatic color scheme. Uh, And I tried to incorporate some skin tones to make it seem a little bit like you're looking at a ghost. Some of the figures have a lot more textures and a lot of information to where you could really see the facial expression, skin textures on it. But yeah, what you see is like a group of people looking at you. And then when you walk with your phone, some of the women turn and look at you. That's probably the more creepy part of it is seeing them look at you or move with you throughout the viewing of the exhibit. There's one platform in the building that has three or four women on it. Two of them are actually look, turn, and look towards you. The setup is kind of a stage area where you would show off this person or that person. And then in the center of the building, you see a small grouping of these white, almost translucent people that are representative of the African family unit. You'll see a mother, a child standing together. You'll see a pregnant woman as well. There's a a mother, a father, and a child that are in a ghostly Casper-ish color, and they're supposed to symbolize this non-existent family unit that's created throughout the process of chattel slavery existence. That's kind of like a focal point, I would say, in the exhibit, is seeing that kind of family unit that's ghostly. And it's not that the other people aren't ghostly because they're more shadowy-looking figures, but that particular focal point just is supposed to highlight a non-existent family unit. I'm speaking with the New Orleans-based artist Marcus Brown. What's the process for creating these things? A lot of the process first involves creating the the three-dimensional geometry of the figures. A lot of that's done with software called Blender, which is something that people use to make 3D models. It's basically a a CAD software. It's an open source software that's free. You can create different animations and films, and people use it in all kinds of different processes. In my case, I spent a long time just making a geometry of the figures. And then after that process takes place, then I do what's called a a painting process. And then I paint and do textures and all of these different colors that go over this mesh. It's what we call it in the 3D modeling world. A a three-dimensional mesh is what I created first, the geometry. Then after that, I do basically a painting process. Then after the painting process, then I format these things into a format that's suitable for augmented reality software. And then I bring it into that software and then I manipulate it there. After all of that, I manipulate it in real time in the physical geometry of a space. So there's about six or seven different softwares that end up going into it. But the basics of it is it's uh, creating the geometry of the meshes. And is there a a transmitter there or something that my phone picks up on? Your phone uses a LiDAR sensor, which is a real-time mapping sensor that's connected with your camera. And what that does is it actually maps out your environment. The software uses those different sensors that are incorporated into your phone to basically uh, decide on where these objects are going to be placed. 
one of the things I like about it, a lot of these exhibits is that the user has to decide on where the objects are going to be placed. And so the user creates their own experience with these exhibits. A lot of times, no two people are going to have the exact same experience with the Slavery Trails exhibits. They'll get the same content, but it won't be exactly the same. In New Orleans, where I have the Solomon Northrop exhibit, it's on a street medium. It's right in the same area where we know that Solomon Northrop was sold after he was kidnapped. Once you place Solomon Northrop and the group of people who were on the domestic slave ship with him on the median, it creates a similar effect to what you see on Wall Street, is that you see a whole grouping of people, and then you see the shadows of the environment react with the actual computer-generated sculptures. So when you look at the exhibits, they're going to look different depending on what time of day you look at them. So what else have you have planned? What's next in the slavery trails? Right now, I have a, a exhibit called Passage. It's a ship of African captives that represents one of the first slave ships to come to Louisiana. How that relates to the New York exhibits is that I'm planning on placing a ship very similar to the exhibit that I have here on the river in the French Quarter. The way that this exhibit is set up is that you actually place the same way that you interact with the slave market, except during this exhibit, you walk through a passageway that brings you through the slave decks of a ship. Dr. Marcus Reidecker is one of my generous advisors on this on this series, but really on, on the, the ship aspects of the project. His book, The Slave Ship, was a huge inspiration for the way that I'm portraying the interior of the ship. Basically, you see these figures chained and uh, moving. There's a lot more animation with this particular exhibit. You could look up and see through the actual decks of the ship with almost like an x-ray vision. And you could see the actual mass of the ship. And, and see that you're underneath this beast of a ship. That's basically that type of exhibit that that's hopefully going to be my next one that I'm going to put in New York. There's tons of other exhibits I have planned out for Manhattan, but having the ship aspect is definitely like the next piece of the puzzle to the slave market project. There's a lot of data about the legal and illegal transatlantic slave trade that involved New York in a, in a very large way. And one of the reasons why I did New York and New Orleans is because of the financial connections between the two. There's a large paper trail of bank offices that were in New Orleans, the French Quarter, as we call it now. Now we're also in Manhattan. At the time of the actual slave market during the 18th century, the New York ship captains and merchants bought and sold slaves along the coast of Africa and uh, a lot of the taverns of their own the Manhattan area. And most of the businessmen in the 18th century had uh, a stake in the actual slave trade uh, in some form or fashion. There's not a lot of evidence to show that, that people didn't have interest. And um, I believe we talked before about how some of the banks admitted to, the banks that we know today admitted to having ties to the transatlantic slave trade and the domestic slave trade in New York. But there's a lot more data there that we just don't talk about in the United States that shows a lot of the founders of Manhattan had a lot of participation in, in that particular trade. And finally, what kind of reaction do you get from people when they see these exhibits? Some of the reactions I get are people are creeped out by it. It depends on who it is and what their connection to slavery is and what their understanding of what slavery is. Um, right after we installed the exhibit, there were some tours that were specifically coming to view the slave market historical marker, which is right next to 
I intentionally put the little plaque about the project and the little code you scan right next to the historical marker. And I found that a lot of people were interested in it because of its connection to technology. But I think once that part kind of wears off, I think people are shocked by it. The way that we look at the human figure is fascinating to me because we can talk about slavery all day long, but it's not going to really have the same effect until you see a human figure that's real enough for you to make a, a human connection to it. And um, it's hard to describe. I definitely feel like people are touched by it in one way or another. I wasn't intending for it to be like a a thing where people are like a horror show kind of thing. It's not like coming out to grab you or anything. But I do think it's probably appropriate that the ghosts of slavery are here to kind of remind us of what happened before in the context of what the piece is about. And I think at the very least, it's important for us to remember that these people were here and were forgotten. And that's, I think, the one of the bigger things is that we just forgot about how much suffering went into it, how much blood, sweat, and tears, as they say, went into building the roads and building the world that we understand. I think we need to do more, but I think this project is a beginning of hopefully us as a society recognizing that they were there. That was the New Orleans-based artist Marcus Brown. His website is artistmarcus.com, artistmarcus.com. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this bit from Bob Marley and the Whalers' Slave Driver. Till next week, bye.